Well, good morning, everyone. Um, it's wonderful just to be with you again. And uh, this morning, so for those who don't know me, I'm Michael, Mike. Um, yeah, and uh, we're elders. Uh, I'm an elder here in Wellington, and my wife serves alongside me. Um, we also have just shifted roles recently. We've been traveling quite a bit. And so next weekend, uh, we're off to Friedendal up the West Coast. And uh, I've never been there before, but apparently it's Divescus, so it's, it's beautiful. And uh, we'll be ministering. We're going to, I'm going to Johannesburg in two weeks' time to minister up there as well. So at the moment, my, uh, our roles change. We'll be going out a lot. So you won't be seeing much of me, um, as in the old days. But yeah, we, our hearts are here, obviously, and we love you guys. It's always good being here. And we really love just being with the church. I, I don't think you're always aware, I must say, I get a chance to travel around a bit, how special the Wellington congregation is and what God is doing here. I don't think we're always aware of just, the, um, just what God is busy doing here. It's very special. It's a very special place. Uh, not the place, but the people. Because we know church is not a place. Church is not this building. It's not the grounds. Church is the people of God that come together to worship um, the loving God through the person of Jesus. Um, but I hope you realize, like, you're a special people, man. Uh, anyway, I kind of forget that, and then we, I come back, it's like, wow, these guys are special. <laughs> special in the best kind of way. And um, so what I'd like to do is I want to preach this morning on a topic that um, Andrew Selly at the beginning of, our, of the, our elders camp touched on, which is something I think of a building block, one of the building blocks this year, in the congregation for us and around the different Joshian congregations. And whether you're here today and you're a mature believer, or you're here today and you're a new Christian, or you're here today and maybe you're finding your way and you're even, not even yet a Christian, but you're looking in, if you're honest, you're kind of checking things out. I trust that whatever the word is, that it'll apply to you no matter where you find yourself, uh, because the word of God is relevant for each of us, where we are and wants to feed us. So I'd like us to start with a scripture in Acts chapter 9 and verse 31. And um, I want to preach this morning on the fear of God, walking in the fear of the Lord, walking in the fear of God. And I want us to start by looking at the scripture here in, in, in Acts 9. And it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Samaria and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit had multiplied. Now, those, you know, most of you have been part of a charismatic church for a long time or a church like ours. We would be charismatic. We believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Spirit. I know when I got saved, um, I got saved at a very traditional church and we were known as uh, the happy clappies. You know, oh, you're going to join the happy clappies. Yes, we're happy and we clap. We're the happy clappies. But more than that, there's the life of the Holy Spirit and um, I know when I got saved about 29, 30 years ago, I, you know, I, got full, I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, began to speak in tongues, all these wonderful things, the life of the Spirit. And so for us, one of the great emphases of, of, of us is, is the life of the Holy Spirit. And here in Acts 9, it speaks about the comfort of the Holy Spirit, how the church walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And you know, the wonder of the gospel is the fact that God is personal. That he's a personal God who draws near and he comes close, Jesus comes close through the Spirit who lives within us. It's a wonderful truth, isn't it? That God is not just my Lord, but in a sense, he's my traveling companion. 
He journeys with me on the pathway of life. He's with us and he's interested in the very detail of our lives. But sometimes what we do is, especially in charismatic churches, we miss out on the other aspect, which is the fear of the Lord. And you see, we see with the early church that they not only walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they actually walked in the fear of the Lord. Now the question is this, what is the fear of God? What is the fear of God? And it's not something that I've heard preached on very much today, but you know, this concept of fear is spoken about as a concept 433 times in the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, this idea of fear. And interestingly, more than half the time that the word fear is mentioned, it's mentioned in connection with God himself. God himself is the object of that kind of fear in the Bible. And um, as opposed to the other times it's mentioned, and when fear is mentioned the other times, kind of just under half, it speaks about not fearing. In other words, you shouldn't fear circumstance. And I love uh, Lazinda's testimony this morning. She had a real sense of, of anxiety and fear over a lack of finances. I don't know how many of you have struggled with that. I know I have. I know during COVID, when, when the first wave hit, there was a real sense of fear that gripped my heart in the sense of people around us, people we love are losing their jobs. Guys were getting pay cuts. They were, um, the world was shaking and there was a real sense that I was struggling with anxiety and fear and I had to bring that to the Lord. Like, God, your word says that we should not fear. We should not be afraid. And, uh, and so the Bible often speaks about that. I know it speaks about don't fear man. We shouldn't have the fear of man. And it says that the fear of man is a snare. It, it, it captures us and it, it stops us living for the Lord. And I know that's something some of us have struggled with. But the fear of God is something very different to all of this. And, um, you know, often people say, oh, well, the fear of God is a bit like respect. It's like, you know, it's another word for respecting God. God is like the old man in the sky, as some people say. He's the big man upstairs. Some people call him the big G. You know, he's the big G. And so therefore, I need to respect him as some kind of distant deity up there. Uh, and it's kind of this distant respect. But the fear of the Lord is nothing like that. The fear of the Lord, when we speak about it, we're going to be speaking about reverence, about awe, and about, in one sense, I'm going to use a specific word for you this morning, terror. Terror. In other words, sheer afraidedness. Being afraid of something. And I, how many of you have ever, I know I used to surf, and I used to paddle out, I was a bodyboarder. Uh, I never stand-up surf, I was a bodyboarder. They used to call us speed bumps, the surfers, because they were just right over the bodyboarders, right? And I was a bodyboarder, but I remember paddling out. There were some days I paddled out, and paddling out on a big day with a big swell, and I remember the one day, there was this huge swell. The problem was it didn't look very big from the beach until you're out in the ocean, and suddenly I'm like, I, I think I could be in trouble today. And let me say that there was terror that gripped my heart that moment. There was a sense of like, I could die. And fear in the Bible is attached, especially the fear of the Lord, where God is the object of our fear. That day the wave was the object of my fear. Whereas there's terror attached to it in a sense, real fear. Especially for those 
that are not right with God. And so people that are not right with God, if you are walking in sin and you know that you are living your own life and you're not really trusting Him, the Bible says that you should be afraid because you rather, you're going to stand and you're going to be in the hands of an almighty God that will, you'll have to give an account for your life. You should be afraid and there should be terror. And there's examples in the Bible of people who at times were sinful and broken that come before a holy God and they are overwhelmed with terror and an overwhelmedness of Him. And so the Bible speaks about this. Let's have a look at a number of scriptures that speak about the fear of the Lord. Psalm 33 verse 8. I'm going to read about five scriptures just out with you. Then I'm going to unpack the concept. It says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Now, if you look here, the, the scriptures I'm going to read, they, they bring out fear and awe together. In other words, we fear the Lord because we realize how awesome He is, how great He is. And so you see a connection between these two. Psalm 47, 1-2. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Don't you love that? That's the charismatic part. Like, you know, it's time to clap your hands. Get happy clappy. It's fine. You can. But then it gives the reason for the Lord, the most high, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. Malachi 2 verse 5. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. Look what it says. He stood in awe of my name. Isn't that a wonderful scripture? It was a covenant of fear, but a healthy sense of this. It was one of life and of peace. So the fear of the Lord is not attached to us cowering away in fear. It's not a kind of like an abused child that is cowering away from its abuser. God is not like that. It's Christians. We're not talking about that kind of fear. It's a fear that brings life and peace. Let's look at Matthew 10 verse 28. It says, And do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. My word, that is a, that is a hectic scripture. In other words, that if you have the fear of God, the fear of God will help you to overcome all other fears. And that's really what I want to get to this morning, is a sense to give you such a sense of the fear of the Lord, of the, the awesomeness of our God, that in a sense that the other fears that you might be having, maybe today you're struggling with a sense of anxiety or hopelessness, or a sense of even there's some sin in your life, or there's a situation that seems bigger than God. When you get an idea of the awe of God and the fear of God, the fear of God helps us overcome all our other fears. And that's something that I'm going to try and bring in and leave with you today. <coughs> Amen? Revelation 14 verse 7. Let's look at another scripture on fear. Because some of us think, oh, but the fear of the Lord, you know, that's just the Old Testament. Just Old Testament. In the New Testament, no, we shouldn't fear. No, 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 no. Jesus says we should. Let's look at Revelation 14 7. And he said with a loud voice, fear God. Give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. 
So we see this idea of, of the fear of God is linked to the greatness of God. Let me use an illustration this morning. One of the things I love doing is I love reading books about mountaineering. I'm not a mountain climber myself. I've, I'm more of like a, a walker into the gentle hills <laughs> and the gentle valleys. But I, I appreciate mountain climbers, especially those that tackle Mount Everest, K2, your biggest mountains in the world. And I've read a number of books and watched documentaries on those that have climbed Mount Everest. Now, Mount Everest, it's the largest mountain, obviously, in the world. It is 8.8 kilometers high. It's so high that when you climb up the mountain, because of the lack of oxygen, it takes you, on average, two months to climb the mountain. And you have to acclimatize because of the lack of oxygen up in, in the air. The top end of Everest, they call the last third, they call it the death zone. And they call it the death zone is because when you climb, your body, because of the lack of oxygen, begins to shut down. And you actually have to try and get up as quickly as you can and get down as quickly as you can, that last section. Otherwise, your body begins to shut down because of the lack of oxygen. And so climbers have learned to handle this. Not only that, but at the top of Mount Everest, this massive, majestic mountain that's 8.8 kilometers high, there are these uh, winds, and they call them jet streams. And for those of you that maybe if you're a pilot, you know that your jumbo jets fly, you know, kind of eight to 10,000 feet, and they fly at the uh, meters, and they fly through the jet streams, in the jet streams, and these jet streams blow at about 120 to 150 kilometers an hour. And, and when you climb to the top of Everest, you've got these jet streams that catch the top of Everest. That's how high Mount Everest is. People that climb Everest say that they feel so small when they go there because they realize the bigness of the mountain. The, the temperatures in Everest in summer the average temperature on Mount Everest is minus 19. And in winter, the average temperature is minus 35. And so the climbers that have been there, even to climb to base camp, which is the lowest section of Mount Everest, they say that their people are actually literally out of breath for days because of base camp and how little oxygen is, and they have to learn to climatize. When they go, they say, it makes me feel so small when I see the majesty of this mountain. And you know, friends, there's a story in the Bible I'm going to share with you of a, of a certain prophet, a man, that when he saw the majesty of God like that, the response of men and women in the Bible that encounter God is not some kind of cavalier, kind of casual approach of like, hey God, you know. It's one of majesty and awe where they realize how big God is and how little they are. And that is the fear of the Lord. And when we have that, it is healthy and it is good. And the Bible says it is the beginning of wisdom. And this example that I want us to look at, it's in Isaiah chapter 6. And many of you know the story, but it's this incredible story of Isaiah, the prophet. This, this, this prophet of God, a young man actually that encountered the living God. It's like this climber that encountered Mount Everest for the turn, for first time. You know, he had been used to the gentle hills, but like me, you know, climbing, walking on the hills of Wellington or Bloemfontein. If you're from Bloem, there's no mountains there in Bloem. It's just copies. And they say when you go to, and I was in Bloem now in January, I didn't see one mountain. 
but I did see the gentle hills and maybe if you're from Bloom and you're climbing all the copies and suddenly a little Bloemfontein is put into Mount Everest in Nepal. The majesty and the awe, you feel like, who am I? The majesty and the greatness. And so Isaiah, in a sense, comes before the living God and he had obviously been used to something of God. He had obviously experienced God in some measure. But let's read the story and it says in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, I just want to stop there. Now, ancient kings would have a robe, and they said that sometimes when they wore a royal robe, especially for ceremonial occasions, what the king would do, he, was, he would have like a train. In other words, you know when you get a wife gets married and she's got that veil and it's got a long section at the back and normally the bridesmaids would hold the veil, would walk behind her. In ancient times, the kings would have this as part of their robe, it would flow behind them. And apparently, the longer the train of the robe, the greater the authority. And so if a king had great authority and great might and lands under him, his robe would be quite long. It was a sign of his majesty. But here it says that God's train fills the entire temple. In other words, he's got so much authority that it fills everything. That's how powerful God is. It's like this God, he's overall, above all, he really is someone of great authority. And it says, him above him stood the seraphim. And these beings, these burning ones, it says, each had six wings, two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I said, and look what he says here. This is the part in verse four. Um, it doesn't, I don't think I have verse four up. But his response to that is not, let me do coffee with God. You know, his response to that is, woe is me. Or he says this, woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I know the King James Version says, woe is me, I am undone. In other words, he's saying, I'm coming apart at the seams, I've seen the greatness of God and the majesty of God and the holiness of God. And because I've seen it with my actual eyes, it's like I realize how sinful I am. I realize how small I am. And in one way, Isaiah's response in that moment wasn't one of, of he came to the Lord, but it was one almost of, of terror, but of a holy terror in the best possible way. And he was like, I'm undone. I'm, I'm coming apart at the seams. And I know for most of us, we, I think probably for all of us, we, we've never had an experience like that. Because the wonder of the gospel is that this great holy God enables us to draw near to him. And that is why, friends, we, need a, we have a mediator. Because Jesus is the go-between between the holy God and between a sinful man. If it wasn't for Jesus, we would be destroyed by God Almighty. And I don't think we realize how, how reverential this is, the sense that this God is not, he comes down to our level in Jesus, but he is holy. And Isaiah's response, like the mountain climber before Everest, I am small, 
is a sense of I am undone. I'm coming apart at the seams. God, something must happen because he realizes that I can't stand before this God. And so what happens is in that moment, the angel comes and the angel takes a coal from the altar. And now this is very significant because what he does is he takes the coal from the altar and he takes it and he touches his lips. And the Bible says, uh, um, the angel says, but your sin has been atoned for. In other words, the coal, the altar, is a picture of a mediator. The fact that Jesus comes and enables us to stand before this holy God. That actually he draws us near, even though we should be pushed away from him in, in some way. And you know, these kind of experiences in the Bible of these men who encounter the living God is something that we see throughout the Bible. Um, we see, for example, Peter. You know, Peter the fisherman, and it's the first time he actually encounters Jesus. And you know what his response was? I'm trying to, I don't know where the scripture is now, but he encounters Jesus and he's fishing and Jesus tells him to take his nets and throw it on the other side of the boat. Another story. And he, and he does it and he's overflowed. You know, the fish come in and he pulls it in and he's so overwhelmed by the majesty of Jesus, even though it's Jesus in the flesh, he falls down and he says, Lord, I am a sinful man. Just get away from me, please. Depart from me, Lord. In other words, he's so aware. In light of who God is, he's aware of his smallness. He's aware of his own, in a sense, um, limit, limited state and his need for God. Friends, I want to say that that's actually a healthy place to be. And if we don't have that, even theologically, if you don't understand that, actually you can never grow in wisdom with God. Because Proverbs 9 verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you want to walk in wisdom, if you want to walk in fruitfulness before God, you have to understand that the only reason we could ever come to a holy God is through a mediator. That is the only reason. In other words, the coal must touch our lips. It's a picture of the cross, that Jesus is our, must become our Lord and Savior. And in a sense, we come to this holy God covered by him. And in one way, so it enables us to delight in Him as a result of it, rather than being afraid of Him. And, um, and this is the foundation of it. And you know, when Isaiah, he says these words, holy, or he sees the angels say those three words, what is it? He doesn't say loving, loving, loving is God. He doesn't say the word forgiving, forgiving, forgiving is God. Even though God is those things, the first thing, this is the refrain that goes in the Old Testament and comes through in the New Testament in the book of Revelation. That's those three words again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And in a sense, this truth, it's like a foundational truth to understand who God is. Now, I know many of us have different understandings of the word holiness. Um, I grew up in a church where for me, holy, holy equal boring. Um, in other words, like if you said holy, I would have thought, oh, it's like that priest, right? Who walks around and he's never allowed to have any fun. That's what holy means. I thought holy was someone who kind of would never drink wine and who would never basically um, go to the movies or never um, kind of seem to laugh. You know, you always had this like very serious, like a holy face, you know? I don't know. You know what that holy face looks like? It's like... I don't know. It's like this, 
demeanor that you carry that it's almost like a piousness the English word is pious it's almost a false sense but you know that it's, it's, it's like a it's a put on it's a front it's a sham it's it's, it's actually for appearances there's no reality under and when you poke a bit deeper it's just someone who's merely religious and and yet holiness when you look at holiness the holiness is an attribute that is always referred to God before anything else and what does it mean to be holy and I want to say there's two things that when it speaks here of God being holy I want to give you two things this morning Are you ready number one holiness refers to God's perfection God's perfection and um, in other words the fact that when they say holy the word means that God is morally pure and perfect that God himself cannot make a mistake that he's without evil he's without um, sin I know there's a scripture in 1 John 1 that says um, that God is light and in him there is no darkness in other words, when you see God, He's morally perfect. He's pure in every way. I think there's a scripture in the Psalms that describes the glory of God and the majesty of God. It says that God clothes Himself with light as He's clothing Himself with a garment. Now, do you, any of you have garments of light? Imagine carrying light as a garment. But that's what God is like, friends. He's so beautiful and majestic that he wears his cloak like a, it's a cloak of light that he puts on. It's so majestic. And this God, he can't do wrong that even when he is angry, and the Bible speaks a lot about God's anger, doesn't it? But even in his anger, unlike our anger, that is a sinful, selfish anger where we hurt people when we get angry, God's anger is always righteous and beautiful and pure because he sees what is wrong and what is evil and he judges it. It's always a beautiful thing. So when the Bible even speaks of his anger, God never does anything wrong. He's always perfect. He's always morally pure in every way. And he's always able to take the worst thing that happens the sinful situation that might have happened to you, evil, something evil, and he takes it and he's able to work it for the good of those who love him. That is what God is like. He's morally perfect. That, so when holiness speaks of it, it's someone that is perfect in his being in every way. But secondly, it also speaks about someone who not only is perfect, but is separate. He's separate from us. He's, there's separation. In other words, this creator is nothing like his creation. God is not in his creation. He's in his creation in terms of he reflects his creation, but God is nothing like his creation. He is other, he's separate, he is exalted. And so the Bible uses words like exalted, magnified. And I'm going to look at a couple of scriptures now that speak about it. In other words, he's not contained by anything. He's, he's not a man that he's like us. Although he stoops to, down to our level, friends, he's nothing like us. He's so far beyond us. And this is why you've got scriptures like, let's read them. I'm going to, um, Exodus 15 verse 11. Let's read that first. It says, and, and Moses is saying here, and he's asking the question, but who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? And he uses this word, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Who is like you? This answer is no one. There's no one that can compare. Well, let's turn to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is one of those kind of, one of the weighty kind of chapters in the Bible that deal with the glory of God and the majesty of God. When you read that chapter, 
It's like standing before Mount Everest. It, it makes you feel small because of the greatness of God. And look what it says here in Isaiah 40, verse 18. And again, he, what he's doing here, he's speaking about idols because what the Jews were, they were giving themselves into idol worship and they were giving themselves into things that were created. And, and he reminds them here, it says in verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Then he carries on, he asks the same question in verse 25, and I want us to read the section. It says, to whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. What is there? Nothing. Nothing you can think of can compare anything to God. He's above us and beyond us in every way. He's so separate that we cannot fathom how, how, how unfathomable he is. And that's why in uh, the second commandment in Exodus 20, it speaks as a command of, that the Israelites were not to create any images of God or even in, made in, in, of, of nature. Because, because how can you contain God if you can try and paint God in a picture? You can't do it. If you try and create an artwork or a sculpture of God, can you do it? You can't do it because God is limitless. And if you try and do it, if you try and even paint a picture of God, you're going to be offending God and sinning against Him. Because you're diminishing His glory. You're making Him small when actually He's big. That's what Isaiah is saying here. And let's read it together. I love this. He says, To whom then will you compare me that I shall be like Him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. In other words, every single of the one of the billions upon billions of stars in the galaxy, God has given them a name. And he knows each one. Calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, and say, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. And he's saying, Why are you saying that God has forgotten you? Why are you saying here that actually I'm hidden from God? He doesn't see me. Why do you say that? Don't you understand? And, and he unpacks this here. Have you not known? Have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God? That he is the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Isn't that amazing? I'm going to carry on now. But friends, I want to say that if you feel that your way is hidden from God, we all feel like that sometimes. God, where are you? I pray to you. I'm seeking you. I feel hopeless. Lord, don't you care? And there's a sense, friends, is that he does care because he's understanding he knows you in your very depths of your brokenness or your situation or that hidden sin or that thing that you're struggling with God is the everlasting God and he's so separate from you he knows every intricate part of you because he's not like you he sees you his ways are hidden from you and then I love this in verse 29 now you think that because of this friend because this God is so separate he's so perfect that almost we can't come close to him and it's like Isaiah, woe to me, I'm undone. But amazingly, this God, and this is the wonder of the fear of God, the fear of God draws us to Him, not away from Him. 
that as Christians is that God's heart is not that although he is so holy, we cannot come into his presence. But because he's so loving, he's given us a mediator who can enable us to come before this holy God and find our strength and our delight in him. That is the good news. But we don't lose the fact that he's holy and that he's awesome. And then, so he comes close. And look at the promise here in verse 29. That this God, this, this creator, this one whose understanding is unsearchable. Verse 29. He gives power to the faint. If you're feeling faint today, praise God. He said he's going to give you power. If you're feeling strong today, sorry for you. Because he gives grace to the humble. He gives, where those who are weak, you are strong. So in a sense, remain in a place of weakness before him. Not in strength in yourself. I hope not, not physically. It's speaking about a spiritual posture. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary. Sorry, TNT guys. And the young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. That is the promise for us, friends. Isn't that a good promise? And so the fear of the Lord, the sense of when you are in awe of Him, and in that, when, you, when you recognize your, His bigness and your smallness, and, and, and you reverence Him. You know, the New Testament in uh, Hebrews 12, it speaks about this great God that we serve, and it says that we serve Him, at the end of Hebrews 12, in reverence and awe, because our God is a consuming fire. But come close, he says, come near, even though I'm like this, because you can delight in me. I love this, 1 Timothy 6 verse 16. Let's look at this scripture. Just one, in, in God's separateness, 16, it speaks about this king. It mentioned before that, that he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it says, who alone has immortality. In other words, he can't die. God was not born. God was not created, and God did not die. God cannot die. God has no beginning, and God has no end. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He's outside of time, and that means that he can simultaneously see the past, and he can see your future, and the future of the end of the world right now, simultaneously because of who he is. And then it carries on. Who dwells, and this is the part I want to get to, in unapproachable light. In other words, it is a light so glorious, he's so separate that it's unapproachable. You can't get to him, but we have a mediator. Thank God. And so because that mediator, although he can't be seen or see, the Bible carries on and says, but in Jesus, he is the image of this invisible God. And then when we come to Jesus as God's son, Friends, we have intimacy with the Holy One. Isn't that a wonderful picture for us? And so, this morning, you know, um, I want to end with the story of the mountain climber again on, on Mount, um, Mount Everest in the Himalayas. And uh, maybe, actually, let me switch analogies. Let me use it of, of the surfing. And, um, you know, many of you, uh, if you've seen big wave surfing, have any of you done any big, big wave surfing? I mean, I say big wave, not like at Sun City at the wave pool. Oh yeah, I've done that big wave. Okay, no, not that. I mean like 30 foot monsters that are 
off, the, off Hart Bay, there's a place called the Sentinel out of Hart Bay. Uh, and I've watched some of those guys. And what they do is on the big swells, when the big swells come in, there's a giant wave comes in. And, and I know they used to have the Red Bull giant wave competition, the big wave surfing competition there. And some of the Josh Jenners that were in Sunningdale used to go out to Hart Bay and um, they used to do that, that competition. And they say paddling out on that wave, when you paddle out there, it's a sheer monster. It's, it's 30 feet. It's like five stories of sheer wall of water that is coming towards you at a speed of like 70, 80 kilometers an hour. The thing is coming towards you, wave upon wave. And they say paddling into the wave, in a sense, is sheer terror. It's like they are just terrified. In fact, one of my friends, JJ, he wasn't surfing that because he was way too scared. But he was on one of the boats with a photographer that was taking photos in the channel. And um, what happened was, as he was in the boat, the boat would kind of catch, the, as the waves would come, they would kind of be sideways with a wave in the channel so they could take photos. But he said that one of the sets came through. Oh, um, sorry, lost battery power here. Can I use the, that mic? Um, okay, it's fine. I'll use this. No problem. We're not recording anyway. We're recording it through the phone. It's fine. And he said one of the sets came through. It was a larger set, um, a wave. And the wave was so large it came into the channel. In other words, it was coming towards the boat. And the guy, um, the, the, the engine was idling. It was kind of, and he panicked, the, the, the driver. And he, and, he, and he flooded the little, the little engine. And, it, and then suddenly they're like, and suddenly they're all sitting in the boat. <laughs> and this wave's coming towards him, like this five-story this five story monster. And like JJ's like, I'm going to die. I'm, I'm not even surfing. And, like, and they're all like sitting on the boat and the guy's like trying to you know, get the engine started. And, and they're all panicking. And eventually he manages to get this thing going. And he says they, they, they drove up the face of, of, the, of, of the wave in this little motorboat. And as they were going up, like, the boat was like this and made it over the other side. And he was like, thank God. And uh, he was just like praising the Lord, you know, Lord, you are real, there is a God, you know, I survived. And, um, and in that place, and he's watching these surfers go down the face of the wave. And in a sense, that is what the majesty and the awe of God is like. You're dealing with a being who's not safe. He's not, God is not domesticated. God is not like us. He's, he's not one that you can tame. He's not some kind of big father Christmas in the sky that, you know, sits on a little throne but has no power. This God, Jesus says, fear him who can throw your body and your soul into hell. This is a being that spoke the world into existence, the universe into existence with a word. This is the power of this being that dwells in inapproachable light. And rather than him chasing us away, the wonder of the gospel, friends, is he says, I want to dwell with you. I know that you're imperfect. You're broken. I'm holy and perfect. You're broken. But I want to dwell with you. I want you to become like I am. And so isn't the wonder that he sends Jesus, this mediator, to bridge the gap between us, woe is me, and the holy God who wants to dwell with us and who wants us to dwell with him. And so this surfer, you know, the amazing thing with these surfers, rather than running out of the water in terror, and this is the amazing thing with big wave surfers, I, I don't, there must be something wrong with them. 
like in, psychologically, you know, or maybe not. Maybe they just they have such a thrill for the ride that they paddle into the wave. They want to catch that thing. And I think that's what it's like for us as Christians. In a sense, you and I are spiritual big wave surfers. Because we are dealing with this God that is so large and he says, I want you to delight in me like that surfer. I want you to come with me. I'm going to take you on a ride and it's going to exhilarate you. But it means undoing everything you've known before. It means leaving the past behind. It means not making yourself Lord. You will not be in control when you ride the wave of God. He will be, right? You cannot have a say. Uh, God, I just want the little two foot waves, you know. I'm just learning. I'm going to paddle. Uh-uh. If you serve the Lord, there's one way, through Jesus to the Father. And when He comes and when He's the Lord of your life, God, He wants to come and wash away all the filth and the rubbish and, and, our, and, and our, our brokenness. And He wants to come and, and transform us into the image of His Son. But it's not on your terms. It's on His terms. And sometimes it might feel that when you say yes to the Lord, I want to say in some ways, God's going to take you and He's going to push you down the wave. It's not going to be safe, but it's going to be glorious. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of our walk with God. And so I'd like to pray for us as we close to say this is that, you know, unfortunately, we live in a culture that has made man big. We make ourselves very large. That's why in in many churches today, you go to a Christian bookstore What are some of the best-selling books today? How you can become more effective. How you can become larger. How you can become a better person. It's about you. But when you read the Bible, friends, man is little and God is big. And can we get back to that place where, like the book of Acts, we're walking not only in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, but we're walking in the fear of the Lord. And so I'd like to pray for us. And I feel like the Lord wants to put his finger on things this morning. And he wants us, he actually wants to come and cut some of us to the heart. I believe like this morning that he wants to turn some of you upside down. Where maybe you've made yourself too big. Or maybe you've been in control of your own life. But if you're a follower of Jesus that actually desires to follow him, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, because he's our Lord, then would you allow him to do the work that he needs to do? And like it says in the book of Philippians, that you would work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because it is God who works in you. Isn't that wonderful? That because God is at work in you, you can work it out with fear, reverence, awe, trembling. This wonderful sense of the delight in the fear of the Lord. So let's close our eyes. Come, let's pray together.